0: There's a friend of this congregation, uh, the Reverend Dr. Diane Moffitt. Many of you will know her. I do not know her personally, but she was the pastor here in town at the St. James Presbyterian Church, but left this past year to go and become uh, the executive director of the Presbyterian Mission Agency in Louisville, Kentucky. And that agency is commending a new initiative to the larger church. I was reading in our denominational magazine, Presbyterians Today, about this new initiative. Just in the current issue, it's called the Matthew 25 Congregation. And the challenge is for churches to embrace this concept and to declare themselves a Matthew 25 Congregation. Which means they will focus on one of three. I don't know why you don't focus on all three of these challenges before the church. One is to build congregational vitality. That's what we're gonna be working long and hard on in the coming months as we approach the fall and you'll be hearing more about that. But the second initiative is to work at dismantling structural racism, which is all around us. And the third one is eradicating systemic poverty. So how are the churches of Jesus Christ called Presbyterian going to address these issues? We already, and I'm proud to say this, have many ministries in this congregation that are well placed to make a difference. The step-up program in dealing with systemic poverty, our race relations task force that is dealing with uh, structural racism in all of its expressions. And the third one, we will continue to work on through discipleship. What does it really mean when we take our discipleship to Jesus Christ seriously? How does that look? How does it affect the church? What difference is that going to make to whoever the new minister is who will be called here sometime in the near future? So my observation is that we are at least well structured to address these issues that are commended to us and yet we are not to grow weary in well-doing as we read in the New Testament we are to stay with it to stay at it and we are hoping that this initiative all three of them will enhance and strengthen what we're doing for Jesus Christ in this community and far beyond because we dare to believe that if God has saved us it is so that he can use us we're saved to serve God and others I'll say more about this in a few minutes But I'm not sure everyone really gets that in the church. And this is where Matthew 25 hits us right between the eyes. It's a warning that Jesus is giving to those who would be a part of his flock. It's a sobering warning. It's a preview of the coming judgment. And I know we don't want to think about judgment, do we? Who among us wants to think about their time of accountability and judgment before the Son of God... And yet we should think about it. We should take it seriously. It has been my experience in all the churches where I've served that most Christians and many Presbyterians, maybe most Presbyterians, ate a labor under a myth, a delusion that we have because we often believe that if we are saved, then we're not a part of Judgment Day. We have been spared the judgment and nothing could be farther from the truth. We will all have to give an accounting of the lives we have lived in light of the faith we have professed. So I ask you today, is what you believe evidence in the life that you're living? How you're living does reflect what you believe. But is it the gospel? Or is it something else? Just two scriptures about all of us facing this time of accountability. From 2 Corinthians 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or ill. And Romans 14, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God so then each of us will be accountable to God. Do you really believe that? What are you doing about it? Now, someone may say, oh, you're just going back to that old works righteousness thing. You're going to be saved by what you do. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you're saved by a faith that works. If you believe, it will be reflected in how you live. It's clear from those passages I read that the Apostle Paul obviously believed there would be a time of accountability for all of us. And someone may say, oh, yes, but Paul also wrote in Romans 8, 1, there is, therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I agree. But that does not deny a time of accountability. Condemnation, no, because we are in Christ. But judgment and accountability, yes. But more importantly than what you think or I think about judgment... Or even what the Apostle Paul thinks, we can go to a higher authority. What does Jesus Christ think? I think we have a clue here in this parable, a disturbing parable from the 25th chapter of Matthew, the parable of the Last Judgment. If I had only known, if we had only known, how often in the course of a week do you utter those words? In order to justify or excuse some action or some inaction on your behalf. If I had known sooner what I came to know later, I would have acted or spoken or done differently. It's what we call twenty-twenty hindsight. It becomes clear looking back. But sometimes we don't see as we're going forward. If I had only known how many times... Have you said that? Have I said that? If I had known your feelings would have been hurt, I would have asked you to join us for lunch. If I had known that she was attracted to me, I would have asked her out years ago. If I had known that smoking cigarettes could cause cancer, I wouldn't have started smoking. If I would known that she was your friend, I wouldn't have said what I did about Alice. If I would known you were coming, I would have baked a cake. If I'd only known that God had saved me in order that he could use me, I would have been much more useful in my life and times. If I had known that my gifts, my voice, my talents, my hands, my help, my money could make an eternal difference in someone's life, well, I would have, what? What would you really have done any differently if you had known that? Would you have been more generous? With your money and your resources that God has entrusted to you to manage on his behalf? Would you have tutored that child who was struggling? Would you have visited that lonely widow that lives down the street from you? Would you have defended that classmate who was being bullied in school if you'd only known? Would you have answered the countless call for volunteers to serve in any of the Redemptive and transformational ministries of this church? Would you have stepped up? Would you have spoken out? Would you really have acted differently if you had only known that it was Jesus that you were serving and not someone else? If we had only known. Those are five sad little words. And then comes the retort. Well, why didn't you know? You should have known. You had eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to comprehend. But isn't it true that so often we see and hear only what we want to see or hear or prefer to see or hear? Matthew 25 is a disturbing parable. The Son of Man, the judge, the king is seated on his throne and various people are called before him to give an account of the lives they have lived. And we're told that the king begins to separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep to his right for approval, the goats to his left for condemnation. The language of our Lord's uh, parable here is very reminiscent of what Kate read to us from Matthew 35. And the prophetic talk about the last judgment, the separate separating the good sheep from the bad sheep, the sheep from the goats. At any rate, according to this parable of our, in our Lord's story... Everyone who is judged, whether for good or for ill, they're all startled and surprised. Those who had showed compassion and concern for the neighbor, for the unfortunate, the downtrodden, they're shocked to learn that in serving them, in serving the least and the last and the lost, they were in truth serving the Son of Man in disguise. They had no idea. They were just trying to meet a need when they saw it. By the same token. The goats are startled to learn that in bypassing others, they had actually bypassed their judge in the person of Jesus. So they stand around gawking at each other and scratching their heads and trying to figure out, when and where, Lord, did, did we see you naked and not clothe you in prison, not visit your sick and not come to your aid. When? And he reminds us, when you did it not to the least of these, you did it not to me. And they are sent away into eternal judgment. I don't like this parable. I don't know about you. It judges me. It disturbs me. If you happen to like it, then your eyes and ears are better than mine. This parable makes all of us would-be sheep rather nervous, it causes us to wonder how often in our lives have we bypassed the Son of Man in need in another person? How much evil might we have prevented? How much good might we have accomplished if we had only known who was being served or who was being dismissed because of our refusal to serve? Of course, it's easy to rationalize and justify our uninvolvement. There's only so much time and money and energy available. And if you exercise compassion over here, you may not have time to exercise compassion over there. I realize that no one can do everything, but can't everyone do something? And more likely than not, we just never get around to responding. We absent ourselves. We simply refuse, and we resist the imposition it makes upon us because it's costly to help someone in need, is it not? But if we knew we were helping Jesus, would our response be any different? If we knew that it was Jesus who was going to be served at Hot Dish and Hope, how many would be out over there in the Life Center helping If we knew that it was Jesus being discriminated against because of his darker skin or his Arabic ways, would we come to his defense? You see, sadly, for many people, it makes a difference who you're serving as to whether or not you will serve. One day, according to Paul Bowler in his presidential anecdotes, Thomas Jefferson is on horseback riding through Baltimore, Maryland. He is vice president at the time. And he's been on horseback all day. He's dirty. He's exhausted. He looks horrible. He goes into the main hotel in Baltimore to get a room for the night. The proprietor of the hotel observing him thinks he's just one of many dirty farmers who's come into town to visit and tells the vice president that there's no room in the inn. That was said one other time to someone else. There's not a room available. He asked him a second time, are you sure there's no room available? And he said, no, not no room available. What he was really saying is the clientele I refer in my hotel is not of this sort. So Jefferson left and proceeded to look for another room. Shortly thereafter, a man came into the hotel and said, well, is Vice President Jefferson staying here tonight? He said, what are you talking about? He said, that man that was just in here was Thomas Jefferson. Well, the innkeeper was embarrassed and horrified. He sent a servant to overtake Jefferson. And to invite him to come back to his establishment, he would have the best of everything if he only returned. And according to Paul Bowler, this is how Jefferson responded to the servant. Tell him that while I value his good intentions highly, If he has no room for a dirty farmer, he shall have none for the vice president. That's a far cry, isn't it, from what we see from so many so-called public servants today who expect to be entitled and privileged and enjoy the perks of their office. Embedded in the American psyche as no other tragedy, perhaps, is one that occurred on April 15th. No, it has nothing to do with income tax. You might have guessed that, but it was April 15th, 1912. It was the sinking of the Titanic when almost 1,500 people lost their lives. This story has captured the mind and the imagination of so many people in America. Movies have been made about it. Books have been written about it. Even a Broadway musical based on it has been produced Walter Lord's book the night lives on published in 2002 reminds us that this tragedy was even more tragic if you consider a conversation that was taking place on a nearby ship that night you see there were two ships nearby the Titanic when it went down one was a passenger ship called the Carpathia. It was 58 miles away at the time when the distress call came in. Only 19 miles away was a cargo ship called the Californian. The captain of the Carpathia was a man of faith and prayer by the name of Arthur Rostrum. And when he got the distress signal over the telegraph, he had his ship change course and proceed full speed ahead to where the Titanic was, 58 miles away. Ordinarily, it would have taken four hours to go that distance. But he made it because he was at top speed. Despite the risk, knowing that there were ice flows in the ocean at the time, they got there in in three and a half hours and were able to save at least 866 people. But while all this was going on, just 19 miles away at the time was the Californian. Two men, an officer named... Herbert Stone and an apprentice named James Gibson are watching the Titanic through their binoculars. But it doesn't look to them like the luxury liner, the Titanic. They saw eight rockets go off, distress rockets. Listen to what Lord writes of their conversation. Through it all, Stone and Gibson talked, puzzled, pondered, and sometimes differed as to what they were watching a ship is not going to fire rockets at sea for nothing, Stone observed, as the two men studied the other vessel. Gibson agreed. Stone added that there must be something to matter with her. Gibson again agreed and said it looked to him like she was in some sort of distress. Have a look at her now, Gibson, Stone said, as he continued to watch the strange ship still firing her rockets. She seems to look queer now. Gibson looked through the binoculars and said, she seems to have a big side out of the water. And he commented that the ship seemed to be listening to starboard and the lights on the afterdeck seemed higher than before. As they watched this strange ship, it began to disappear. And they concluded that the ship was steaming off to the southwest. At 2.20 a.m., when the lights of the ship disappeared completely, they assumed that she had dropped below the horizon. She hadn't just dropped below the horizon. She had dropped below the frigid waters of the North Atlantic. If they'd only known what they were seeing, would they have responded differently? How many more casualties might have been spared if they had gone to the relief of this ship? If I lost a family member or a friend on that ship, I would want to know. You should have known. You're trained seamen, aren't you? Do you think they would have responded differently if they thought the King of England or the President of the United States was on board the ship? What if they had family members who were on that maiden voyage of the Titanic? Would if they would they just have sat there and watched and observed and commented, or would they have responded? The reaction of those those two ships that night reminds me of the reaction of the sheep and goats in our parable for today the carpathial like the sheep saw a need and did what was necessary to meet it even at the risk of personal harm the Californian like the goats wasn't sure what they were seeing waited too long to make a decision and finally did nothing at the cost of many lives in reformed theology part of us is a Presbyterian church One of our firm beliefs is that we are saved in order to serve. You're not saved just so you can go to heaven when you die. You're saved so you can be some earthly good while you're here. And people worry about their eternal salvation. Oh, preacher, you think I'm really saved? I believe the gospel. Well, tell me, is it evidenced in your life? The devil believes Is there any evidence for that belief in the way you're living, the way you're serving? Do you know that in serving others, you're serving your Lord? Oh, but preach, I've heard the gospel. I believe the gospel. Are you living the gospel? Are you a sheep or a goat? Now, when it comes to your judgment day and you're standing before the Lord to account for your life or your faith and your works, You may have lost your last excuse. It's not a good one, but maybe you were planning on using it. Oh, Lord, I just didn't know. And the Lord may well say, yes, you did know. You were sitting at First Presbyterian Church on June the 2nd, 2019, and you weren't asleep. You knew. The only issue is whether you responded or not. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen. One announcement. If you want to do something right away, I forgot to include this announcement. I was giving it right before worship. But if you want to be a silent saint who adopts one of our college students, contact Ann Yarborough. Amen.